Hello and welcome. You are listening to Goring Guilty Podcast. I'm Georgia. And I'm Greg. And this week, I believe we're doing the case of John Darwin. I don't know too much about this case, so I'm really excited to hear more about it. So what can you tell us about it, Greg? Well, this case is a real doozy, and I'm really excited to cover it for a couple of reasons. But I guess the first thing is that, unlike a lot of the cases we've covered, there's less of a violence factor within this case. But we are called Gore and Guilty, and we're going to cover it for a reason, obviously. And there's just so many twists and turns in this case. So many actions that are taken by people that are really hard to wrap your head around. And I think it's going to... I'm not sure how well known it is, so I think that's going to be another factor here that a lot of you will hopefully enjoy is, for some people, I think it's going to be like, wow, how have I not heard about this case before? So yeah, before we jump into John Darwin and uh, his canoe, let's uh, start (laughs) with the usual way by saying, how are you doing, Georgia? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, Well, we're in December now, so we are moving swiftly to Christmas, which is coming around way too quickly. And on the weekend, I had an exciting little fun thing. I had my first like tarot card reading. So I did loads of that kind of stuff this weekend. So it's been really fun. <laughs> Where was that? What was the reading too like? Or are you not going to keep it quiet? Um, so the reading was, so it was done here uh, where I live. We had a Frankenround who's a psychic medium. We've, yeah, we all kind of like did a whole weekend of like, playing around with some readings it was really good fun but yeah no the the reading was really good it gave me a lot of like advice I had a few questions that I kind of wanted answering and it actually gave me the answers so I've got some clarity on a few things which is really good but yeah it was really it was really good um but there was one spooky thing that happened it may be a coincidence or me being you know when you're in that spooky mind frame where you kind of like everything kind of could mean something (laughs) so it could be one of those things but I thought I'd tell you about one of those things that happened over the weekend on one of the readings that I had um the last card that I had was to do with grief and like about it, it it was fine. It was all about understanding it and now being able to process whatever's happened and then moving forward from it and it's all okay. And that was really good. But it was quite interesting that this card came about because um, someone that I know has passed over to like the other side and they really liked dogs. Like dogs were like their... They, they loved them. The dogs loved them. They loved the dogs. Like it was just, yeah, kind of that person that... The dogs would run up to that person, sort of thing. Oh, nice. So when um, this card came about, there's three dogs in the house, and all of them started acting very, very strange. So there's a really quiet dog. She started talking to the other dogs. Like, it was all happy talking, but they were, like, making so many noises to each other. And then the puppy had his tail, like, up, and he was trotting back and forth, up and down. And he never does this. All of these animals were acting in a very different behaviour to what they normally do. Wow. Which is really strange. So when this happened, all of us that were in the room all said, there's definitely something here. Like, there's a presence. Like, the dogs dogs are acting strange. So something might be here. So after this happened, like, we closed, we finished, like, the reading. And then I kind of said to myself, if this person is around 
could you show me a sign or let me know that it might be you that's about and so forth. I didn't tell anyone about this. And then about 15 minutes later, I'm walking from the main house to the garden house, which is where I stay. It's pitch black. There's nobody around and I'm walking on some gravel as I do this. Now this, I know it's small and it might mean nothing. A stone is thrown at me from the front into me, like into my shin. There's nobody around. It couldn't have come from anywhere. And I did try out, so I had sliders on to see if I could like pick up the stones. No stones came up. And even if it did flick up, it would hit me at the back of my legs. Like this stone was thrown from the front. So I don't, I mean, 15 minutes later, I don't know if it is a sign, but it was very strange. (laughs) It could be. It could be a sign. So that was my spooky experience. Like, it could be a coincidence, but it was very weird. (laughs) We are a slightly paranormal podcast anyway, so I thought you might enjoy that. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. And you're you're a paranormal household over there as well, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, good fun. But anyway, how's how have you been? What have you been up to? Yeah, I'm really good. I'm loving life right now. I played football, oh yeah, soccer, whichever way you want to put it, for the first time yesterday in five years. <gasps> really? And I am in so much physical pain today. <laughs> Oh, I genuinely like I couldn't get out of my car when I like yeah. pulled back up in Cardiff. And <laughs> if you, <laughs> I think there are muscles that have been stretched and pulled that haven't been touched in a, yeah five years. So wow, the pain is real, but no pain, no gain, as they say. And I really enjoyed it. It was nice to like kind of roll back the years. But if you do hear the occasional like Ugh, or Ooh, <laughs> it's not paranormal. It's me in. <laughs> in a lot of pain because yeah. obviously my legs are just not functioning right now oh no but other than that everything is all good everything is well and um i've not done a tarot tarot reading sadly but i want to i want to do one that sounds really cool you need to come over to this house and we can do some stuff it's mm. <laughs> good fun i lived with a woman briefly in when i had like my first job post uni uh because i had to stay there on the weekdays and she had a load of books on like tarot card reading, but because of COVID, I didn't stay there very long, ah. and it meant that I never got to get a reading done. You'll have to come here. You'll have some fun. Absolutely, absolutely. But paranormal things aside, yes. Football injuries aside, <laughs> shall we jump into the case? Yes, let's do it. This week, we're covering the case of John Darwin's disappearance. Often called the Canoe Man, this is a solved mystery. And I know some people hear disappearance and they think, oh no, no conclusion for me today on this podcast. But that isn't true for this case. And it's super wild, like I mentioned at the beginning, with loads of twists and turns. So plenty to digest. Hopefully it's enjoyable. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to remember this case once I start talking about it, but you don't remember the name John Darwin, right? But yeah, no, it doesn't sound familiar at all, so I'm excited. It's kind of weird. This case just like came to me randomly in the middle of the week for no good reason. I wasn't reading about disappearances or canoes or anything. I was just doing work and was like, hey, I kind of remember this crazy case. And lo and behold, I found it and it is crazy. Ah, it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm excited. 
So I could have started this case in a couple of places. In fact, I could have started this case anywhere, which is a bit of a clue about what's going to happen. But I've decided to go right to the beginning to tell the story. But we're going to jump about chronologically. It's not going to follow one easy-to-digest format. So you guys might have to bear with me, and we'll go over some recaps. Sounds good. On the 21st of March, 2002... Prison officer John Darwin took his kayak to Seaton Carew in the northeast of England and paddled out to sea. Witnesses reported seeing him enter the sea at around 8am. When John didn't show up for his work shift as a prison guard at 9.30pm, the alarm was raised that he may have gotten into some trouble. Five RNLI lifeboats, two Coast Guard rescue teams from Hartlepool and Redcar, a police fixed-wing aircraft with heat-seeking equipment, and teams of police officers helped search for John. Despite searching over 60 square miles, John was not found. Instead, the search only found a double-ended paddle that you'd expect a kayaker to be using. Uh, So, did he go missing... So it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and his shift was at 8.30 that morning? 9.30 that morning? 9.30 9.30 in the evening. Okay, you're right, okay. So I was going to say that was quite... I thought it was in the morning both, and I, I was like, he's only going to have a quick quick little paddle out before he shifts. In and out, in and yeah. out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, out go done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that makes sense. Yeah, so over, over 12 hours before it, like the alarm was raised, basically. Right. So yeah, despite searching all this space, they didn't find John. They only found this double-ended paddle that you know the you know the ones I mean that the kayakers use. Yes, yeah. They kind of like row one side then the other. Yes, exactly. That's all they found. And the deputy landing authority for Red Car Lifeboats said, and this is a quote: "If a canoeist loses his oar and cannot retrieve it, he is at the mercy of the sea and the currents, and has to sit it out until he's rescued." <gasps> that must be so scary. Yeah, I know. I've heard stories of like surfers and stuff that have gone out surfing on their own and got swept out to sea and they've just had to like sit on their boards. Yeah. Until someone realizes they're missing. Oh. Mm-hmm. Scary. God knows where you might end up. Later, they also found what appeared to be John's kayak, seemingly quite battered by the sea. Oh. Mm-hmm. Things weren't looking good for John, as days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months and still he hadn't been found. There was a fresh appeal for information in September 2001 that wasn't fruitful. And at this point, it sounded like John's wife and Darwin had given up hope. She says, I have no reason to think he would have left and stage managed this. All I want is to bury his body. And there's even a story of them actually finding a body that turned out to not be John Darwin's body and his wife Anne had a breakdown because she was just like, I want to just have some closure. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that did confuse investigators was that John had managed to get into trouble despite the seas being particularly calm on the day he went missing. And from all accounts, by his own account actually, John Darwin was not a novice kayaker. It's something he did regularly and he still managed to clearly get into some kind of bother on the day in question. That's strange. So he's quite an experienced kayaker. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it wasn't like his first time or anything. Sadly, John's wife Anne and their two children seemed to be forced to move on with their lives without John. 
on the first anniversary of John's disappearance and took flowers to the sea where his battered canoe was found. Now, let's leave 2002 behind and jump forward over five years and get straight into the action on this case. What? Okay. On December 1st, 2007, John Darwin walked into a London police station and said, I think I'm a missing person. Wait, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Are you joking? (laughs) Yeah, so over five years has passed and this guy's been missing the whole time. And yeah, he he walks into a London police station and just says, I think I'm a missing person. Yeah. Well, where the hell was he? Where did he go? (laughs) (laughs) All in good time, all in good time. Uh, police checked John's health and apparently he was in good health and then they informed his stunned family (gasps) despite being missing for over five years John had reappeared and obviously everyone was very very delighted but equally confused yeah I bet now the problem was that John could not remember anything that had happened he claimed that he had amnesia is it coming back to you now? Yeah, it's coming back to me. <laughs> yeah, I have heard this one very briefly. Okay. It's ironic it's coming back to you when I'm talking about amnesia. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, no, this makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, John's basically turned up. He's like, I think I'm missing, but I can't remember a thing. And I can't remember anything from like even before he went missing. Wow. So yeah, he claimed he had no recollection of what happened on the day he he vanished or in any of the time that has passed since. Right. Either way, his sons were elated, as I'm sure the rest of his family and friends were. What a miracle it must have seemed initially. Yeah. However, things didn't remain this way for long. Okay. On the 5th of December, just a few days after his reappearance, John Darwin was arrested on suspicion of fraud while he was at one of his son's houses. (gasps) Okay. His sons would later describe their dad's reappearance as a complete rollercoaster of emotions. Just after John's arrest, one of the most shocking pieces of evidence surfaced in the public. The Mirror, a UK tabloid, published a photo of John and his wife Anne. They were posing in Panama. And the photo was taken a year before John's reappearance. Wait, what? So she'd already seen him? (laughs) Yeah. So she's in on it as well? She's in on it as well, yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. So so this guy's, yeah, been missing five years. His wife, grieving widow, is delighted to hear he's come back. And then this photo surfaces of her and her husband on a website about taken about a year before John turned up to that police station. Oh my goodness. Wow. And what's, what I find quite amusing is that the photo was apparently found by just a normal member of the public and all they Googled was the words John, Anne and Panama. What? <laughs> so if you were in on this like elaborate plan, you wouldn't take photos and post them on the internet, right? Like... I. It's so funny. Surely, (laughs) surely they would think maybe someone's going to find this and then put two and two together. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I'll definitely share the photo with the case too. Yeah. And you'd think they'd be like, oh my God, covering their faces. Like, don't take a photo of me. <laughs> yeah. But they're just grinning. They look really happy. <laughs> so strange. At this point, it became clear. Not only had John been alive for all these years, but he had been living a secret life with his wife, Anne, for the whole time. <gasps> so let's jump back to the beginning and look at the timeline with this new outcome in mind. We now know that John did not drown or get into any kayak trouble in March 2002. Instead, he faked the kayak incident on that fateful day. Afterwards, he moved into a bedsit and lived next door to his wife. What? Yeah. Right next door? Right next door. Anne explained to her children that their father was likely dead and not returning, so they weren't in on the secret. That's brutal. These guys were young adults at the time. In February 2003, John took things a step further and moved back into his wife's home. In one clip, which we'll listen to now and I'll share in the episodes, Anne describes how John would pick his moments to hide when they heard a car approach the house. So let's listen to that clip now. And then, of course, there's the, the, there's, there's the stuff of movies that, that he's now disappeared um, and you have to wait for him to be you know, sort of declared dead and collect the money. For four years, he lived next door. With a, there was an adjoining door between the two houses. How do you pull that off? How, how, when someone comes to the door, how often was he in your place and, and, and across in his? Well, if, if we didn't have family or friends visiting, then he was mainly in my house. Um, fortunately, we had a gravel driveway, so if cars approached, we could hear them come. He's constantly looking out of the window. Uh, if the doorbell rang, I always looked to see who was coming, who it was. And, you know, we made a judgment call as to whether he would have to disappear or stay, or if he could stay and you didn't, in so did you an upper floor. And you did think at any point, saying to him, John, we can't do this anymore? I mean, it... Often, many, many times. And what did your son say? Because they've lost their father, and then suddenly mum's uprooting and moving to Panama, of all places. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a place that you'd probably bought up before. No. And suddenly you're moving find a house and that's where the infamous photograph is taken when that picture was taken did you did you not think oh, oh my god that's yes. dangerous well yes we wish that had never been taken but you know it was done in an instant there was no no forewarning that that was going to happen when you say you wish it had never been taken does that mean that you wish you'd never been caught no no uh i knew that it would all come out eventually and Going to Panama, it wasn't to escape it. It was just another section of John's plan, John's scheme. What did you think of that? Wow. Oh, my gosh. So, first off, like, I can't believe he lived right next door. Um, And they had all those different, like, techniques, like... um, the gravel driveway to make sure that no one they knew when someone was coming i think you just constantly live in fear that's just unbelievable really and um but i do i don't know i don't know what to make about her and like how much he manipulated her or how much of her involvement was in there but i i do think she feels something towards her kids and what he put her 
them through but my gosh how anyone can do this <laughs> she talks about it pretty coldly i know she says she regrets it but uh, it's quite an interesting way that she just talks very calmly about what well, was a very serious situation like yeah. maybe it never really dawned on her how serious it was what they were doing and they did it for so long it's just yeah bizarre and the photograph of course so how she said that oh the photograph was taken in an instant yet there's posing smiling at some point she could have said no no photos please but uh like the reporter says are you are you sad that it happened because it led to you getting caught or is you like no 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 it wasn't that i was regretful that it happened because of the court but i feel like she's backtracking she knew the end was nigh once that photograph was taken. Yeah, it is a very funny kind of situation with the photograph. <laughs> yeah. How jovial they look in that photo is quite amusing because you'd, you'd assume that they'd be covering their faces or just like, no, don't take a picture of me. But no, they're just there looking really jolly, really happy. Like they're on holiday. <laughs> like they're on, yeah, like they're on a nice jolly holiday, which they were. So Yeah, start their new intriguing. life. Intriguing. A death certificate was issued for John, which allowed Anne to claim the life insurance policy. A sum of £500,000 was reportedly paid to Anne in total. Wow. Across all the years. That wasn't just life insurance either. That was some other things like pension, like pension and all sorts. We may discuss this again later, but that was the motivation for the crime, the money that they stood to make. The Darwins had basically spread themselves too thin with some investments and they were taking on some serious debt yeah they basically bought houses to rent out couldn't get enough tenants for a lot of people pretending to family and friends that they've been killed wouldn't be an option however it's the option that john decided to go with and he managed to convince Anne to go along with it while living with Anne, john was apparently quite brazen we can listen to another clip now about him talking about going for walks confident that his disguise would keep him safe Okay. All right, so let's listen to this. It was a spur of the moment. It was simply to obtain some money to tide us over. But it was intricate, so you must have seen that. It was intricate in one sense, yes. Intricate that I thought I was worth more dead than alive. And that was the truth. I thought it would relieve myself for the financial burden and I thought it would relieve both of us from the emotional burden. Yes, I came up with the plan and the plan was simply to claim on the insurance money. And was Anne in on this plan? Was your wife plotting it with you from the beginning? It it does take two and yes, she had misgivings at first but then of course she did go along with it. So how did you do it? Did you sit around the table and, and go no, through what I, you were going to do? No, I worked out the details and then presented them to her. And of course she didn't want to go along with it at first, but as there were no other feasible way to save what we had, then she went along with it. And why a canoe? It was a kayak. <laughs> but it was more feasible for me to go out paddling because I'd done so in the past, it wouldn't be seen as out of the ordinary. But you did come back to see I did come back. She did come and collect me, yes. And then you hid out in the house. 
I stayed in the house. I slept there. I wasn't hiding for six years or whatever the police said. No. Um, I used to walk along the, the front. Why did you feel you could be so brazen when it was such a complex crime? Because I didn't look the way I do now. How many near misses did you have? I did walk back from Hartlepool one day and um, my heart nearly stopped because in front of me was uh, my brother and father walking towards me. Luckily they didn't recognise me. But I also walked past staff who I used to work with every day. When you had got away with what seemed like the perfect crime, why did you then come back, walk into that police station and effectively give yourself in? I treated the, the, the crime as basically borrowing the money of the insurance companies. I knew I would come back one day, I knew I would have to pay the money back. I came back really because I have two sons, and I wanted to be part of their lives again. Cool, so what did you think about that? Well, that was like polar opposite to Anne. I think the, the, the first shocking thing that happened during that clip was when he corrected the reporter and said, oh, it wasn't a canoe, it was a kayak. And he almost, he laughs at it. Like, he doesn't take it so seriously. Like, he's almost proud about the task that he did and how he nearly got away with it. It's its a completely different atmosphere. I don't know how he thought his disguise was going to, like, work. I mean, it was just basically a beard. Like, <laughs> I don't know whether guys, like, as soon as they grow a beard, they could become a different person. But I don't think, yeah, how he thought he was going to get away with that. Well, it did work. I mean, he did get away with it, really. No one recognised it, <laughs> other than one person, which I'll talk about in a second. But yeah. generally, he seemed to be able to just go out for wonders under the cover of his beard, and somehow people didn't notice. He's still in his same neighbourhood, though. It's just so confident. It's just unbelievable. And um, But yeah, it's a lot more colder, and definitely at the end of the interview when the reporter kind of questions his motives or like why he did it or why he wanted to come back um you definitely see like a change in his response like he doesn't like to be questioned and he's quite i don't know it's not even on the defense he he just doesn't like to be questioned i, I think there is like a another side to him that's probably quite dark yeah he doesn't show a lot of empathy uh, when he talks about almost bumping into his father and his brother on a walk, like yeah. these are people that he grew up with that that love him presumably, and heartbroken that Grieving. he's gone missing. Yeah, not still wondering as well. Like, is he dead? Is he alive? And he kind of talks about it as like a funny thing, like, "Oh, my heart dropped. I almost got caught." Yeah, it's just unbelievable. And and him saying that the reason why he decided to come back was for his sons and to see them again and. But he didn't really think about that when he decided to fake his own death and like the turmoil that he was going to put upon them when he decided to do that. I think, yeah, I'm not sure how much I believe that that was his true, true reasoning. He also had that like other secondary reason. Well, actually, I think he says the other reason first, which is 
that I always planned to pay the money back, always intended to give the money back. Oh, yeah, yeah, borrowing. And it was a loan. <laughs> and then, oh, by the way, I have kids that I care about. Um, so you're right, I don't know if I fully buy into that excuse for coming back. And um, I actually have that in my notes later about ah. what the real reason could be. Okay, look forward to that. But yeah, like I mentioned earlier, while John was living in the bedsit, a tenant of his actually recognised John and asked him, aren't you supposed to be dead? <laughs> what? John replied, don't tell anyone about this. And the tenant chose not to report it to the police because he didn't want to get involved. What? Well, what? It's a really difficult one of what to do, because if someone's going to go to the the lengths of faking their own death, what are they running from? Why would someone do that? They're, for him, there's probably going to... He's probably thinking, what's the bigger picture? Obviously, probably should report it. But what are you, what would he be getting himself into? Yeah, it might not even have been money from the uh, tenant's perspective. Maybe he's like, oh my God, this guy's gone into witness protection or this guy's... Someone's you know, after maybe... him or like, wh- why would someone fake their own death? So, yeah. Yeah, and equally... Maybe this is slightly unfair, but if John had told more people, like everyone super close to him, maybe the crime would have been somewhat innocuous because it had just been the insurance company that actually lost out. Yeah. Um, So maybe this guy presumed that, hey, it's probably likely that his kids do know or something like that. I I don't really know. Not making excuses. Probably should have told the police. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Understandably, just didn't want to didn't want to touch it. He probably. No one expects to walk into that kind of storyline, I think, in their life. (laughs) To go and bump into someone that's fake their death. Absolutely. Both John and Anne had decided they wanted to move abroad by 2004. John managed to get a passport by stealing the identity of a child that had passed away in Sunderland 1950. Oh my gosh, that is something else. (laughs) I think that's quite common. I I think using the identity of... Like people that died a long time ago is yeah relatively common. I heard about that a while ago. Like read a story about people frustrated that relatives that are deceased many years ago are now being used. Yeah, their identities are being used. I think yeah, it makes sense because then they can live their adulthood life as a new persona kind of thing. But on a moral ground, it seems sort of wrong. Uh, it does. Yeah, it does feel unsettling, doesn't it? Yeah. John Darwin used the name John Jones and was successful in getting a passport. Wow. John managed to do some travelling from this point onwards. Anne and John visited Cyprus to investigate buying properties there. In 2005, he flew to Spain to look into buying a £45,000 boat over there. A boat? Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's living living up his life now, I suppose. Living the life of luxury, looking to get a nice yacht or something. I don't really know what type of boat it was. (laughs) Yeah. The couple began to consider Panama as a possible relocation destination. On the 14th of July 2006, they flew to Panama and visited a property agent. And this is where the fateful photo that eventually exposed their fraud was taken. Ah. They purchased a property in the Central American country. Anne told her children that she was starting again and moving to Panama, likely to their surprise. Yeah. That I can't believe as well. It's just like, see your family, I'm off. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, exactly. Only a few years after losing your partner to then just be like, yeah, I'm off to Panama. It's very strange. 
strange move from Anne, but it seems that her children were accepting based on what she said. Yeah. When she described her reasoning for moving to her son Mark, she said, It's a nice, hot Catholic country. The prosecutor in her eventual fraud case, however, noted that it did fall outside of UK jurisdiction and that likely was another benefit. Mm, Yeah, very convenient. Anne went back and forth between the UK and Panama for a short while, wrapping up her life in the UK. She sold her bedsit properties that were now in her son's name. Apparently the son was told that the reason the properties were put into his name was so that he wouldn't have to pay inheritance tax. However, it was probably to ensure that John was a step further away from all these dealings. Yeah, that makes sense. Anne accidentally caused herself an issue during this time. A co-worker at the reception she worked at had overheard several conversations Anne had taken from someone who sounded an awful lot like her dead husband. (gasps) These conversations happened so frequently that the colleague did contact the police. Wow. Uh, Nothing happened before John came back and faked his amnesia, but I believe the colleague's report did trigger an investigation that identified some of Anne's weird behaviour. All the property dealings, the moving to Central America on her own, obviously all this extra money, etc., really meant that when John did hand himself into police they were able to arrest him quite quickly after. Yeah, it sped up the process. But how blasé of first, like, start, like, calling him at work, and when, surely she would have had to have, like, a story behind it of who she's calling so frequently. If she's living by herself, she's not, obviously, probably not dating, because she actually has her husband living next door. Surely she would have to kind of let people know who she's calling, and obviously she can't say, like... I feel like that's just like a basic <laughs> a basic requirement for a faking your death story. <laughs> yeah, I'd be surprised like was she excusing herself? It sounds like in what from what I read that the coworker said it sounded like her ex-husband, so or her dead husband. Yeah. So was it so close in proximity to her co-workers that they could literally overhear someone that sounded like John? It sounds like it. Maybe like her phone would ping up of not my husband, John. <laughs> <laughs> Dead hubby. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, the Darwins later purchased an additional property in Panama for £200,000 with the intention of creating a hotel for canoe and kayaking holidays. <laughs> oh, that is ironic. John claims that was never the case, but I think it was. <laughs> I want to believe it was anyway. Yeah. Now, you may be wondering, why did John come back? It seemed to be the perfect crime where John and Anne were now living an exotic life in paradise. A paradise that was outside of UK jurisdiction. Anne had already received the life insurance money and everything seemed to be going swimmingly. You may recall in the clip of John, he claimed his motivation for returning was missing his two sons. How do you feel about that as a reason? Yeah, I I just don't buy it because... He wasn't thinking about his sons at the beginning of this whole plan. Um, He doesn't really show very much empathy at all throughout that whole interview. I just don't think it's probably in his nature. So I think that that was probably a convenient cover-up for a real reason. Yeah, I think so too. It's believed, with evidence to back it up, that the real reason for John's return was a visa issue in Panama. Ah, okay. 
John emailed Anne in June 2007. He told her that they'd require an investor's visa to remain in Panama. However, to get one of these visas, their identities would need to be verified by the UK police. Busted. (laughs) (laughs) John knew that his fake identity would not pass this high level of scrutiny. And consequently, it's believed that is the reason that he returned to the UK and made up the amnesia story. As far as I'm aware, for this case, we've covered a lot of the bases when it comes to details. But this isn't the end of the episode, because let's do a quick recap before discussing some points of interest. And then I'll let you know what John and Anna are up to now. Sounds good. To recap... John and Anne stretch themselves too thin and find themselves in debt. John concocts an idea to claim his own life insurance. He fakes a disappearance, effectively faking his own death by vanishing during a date of kayaking. His wife Anne then has to spend years faking that she's a grieving widow, allowing her own sons to believe their father was dead. After John spends years living with Anne in secret, they attempt to build a new life in Panama, and when that doesn't work out, They try a crazy story where John pretends he has amnesia and has actually been alive this whole time. (laughs) So shocking. I want to say for the record as well, I'm actually really disappointed by the lack of creativity in John's return (laughs) story. I had amnesia. It's rubbish. He could have come up with anything. Like, I was on a deserted island, (laughs) eating coconuts and drinking rainwater, but no. (laughs) Amnesia. (laughs) I like that. I like the... Desert Island, you could say that he was eaten by a whale or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Chased by drug lords, but they went with amnesia, which is rubbish. Rubbish. (laughs) You may have guessed, but both John and Anne went to prison. Yeah. John was convicted on seven charges after pleading guilty, including obtaining cash by deception and a passport offence. Anne pled not guilty to all her charges, Because of this, believe it or not, Anne actually received a longer sentence of six years and six months, whereas John received only six years and three months. Wow. I'm surprised at that. So it was just purely because she said not guilty that she got a few years, a few months, sorry, longer than John. Yeah, exactly, because they had to go through a whole trial, which I don't think her sons are very pleased about. And um, yeah, whereas John just pled guilty, so he got a shorter sentence in exchange. They received their sentence in July 2008, and John was released on probation in January 2011. Anne was released a couple months later in March 2011. All of their assets were confiscated and sold to reclaim the money that the couple had acquired fraudulently. Apparently, in total, the couple repaid £541,000. Wow. Which is a lot. They must have had some expensive assets. Yeah. Definitely. So they only kind of served a a few years then out of their six-year sentence. Yeah, they did. But I think even that was quite surprising to them. Yeah, because in that interview of Anne's, the first clip, she mentions how she was surprised about how long the sentence would be. But they've literally gone through the whole ordeal of faking a death. Like, that's completely illegal. So, yeah, I don't know why she's so surprised. (laughs) <laughs> especially yeah, when absolutely. they've gone through all the details as well like you know they they talk about how they had to go be very thorough about all the details and steps of making sure this plan was successful surely they would have gone the counter side of what are the consequences what could happen if it all goes wrong but i don't know i'm slightly surprised about that wait which part which part are you surprised about sorry that she was surprised 
at how long the sentence would be if she was... Uh... So you're surprised at her surprise? I'm surprised at her surprise, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I wrote that. I'm surprised that you're surprised at her surprise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised at No, stop. <laughs> we'll go endlessly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, okay. Surprise aside, let's talk a little bit about John and Anne as a couple. Anne was described by the police as a compulsive liar, but she has garnered sympathy from people. <gasps> Wow. Anne ended up writing a book called Out of My Depth. She said she wrote the book so that she could process why she went through with the scheme and to help her sons understand why she did it too. Okay. Based on Anne's book, it seemed that John Darwin had all the traits of a narcissistic personality disorder, such as a lack of empathy, which we've already seen. Yeah. And he was often trying to impress others. Mm, okay. So where did Anne fit into this? Was she a willing accomplice to try and attain her dream life? Or could this have been a case of marital coercion, where John put pressure on Anne to go along with the scheme? In an interview with The Guardian, she said she had a newfound grit as a consequence of spending time in prison with hardened criminals. Supposedly she'd never be able to talk as freely as she is now in her interviews because John would ordinarily be glued to her side and speaking for her. Mm, interesting. The reason she says that she gave in to John's scheme in the first place was that she believed him when he told her that she would never cope on her own, a belief he fostered by belittling her throughout their 37-year marriage. 37 years? Wow, that is a long time. That is a long time to be married to a person. Anne said that as their marriage wore on, while there were no threats of physical violence, John did become increasingly overbearing. She said this quote, Early on, I knew that I would be fighting a losing battle if there was anything to discuss. John always had the counter-argument, so there was no point disagreeing. He always got his way. Maybe only Anne will know to what extent she was a willing accomplice, but there are a couple of pretty telling quotes from her sons that illustrate their feelings about the situation at first. Anthony says, and this is a quote, Dad told one nasty lie and disappeared, but she lied for six years. Mm -hmm. She kept on lying even when the evidence was so overwhelmingly against her. She dragged us through hell by forcing a court case, and her maternal instincts didn't kick in for a second to protect us. He's not wrong. He, she did lie for six years. That's a very good point. Yeah, she lied yeah, to yeah. everybody. All the people that would console her over the death of her husband and she would accept all that help and support. Like, that is quite something. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I imagine that it was not a nice situation for those sons. No, no. Even though their father had hatched the plan, Anne has committed the cardinal sin of failing them as a mother. Mark went one step further. He certainly didn't mince his words when he said this quote. The mother I had respected and loved all my life seemed to have been transformed into a hideous, lying bitch <gasps> who had gone to outrageous lengths to Connors. Wow, okay. Yeah, he didn't mince his words. Not at all. Although equally telling is Mark and Anthony are apparently now on speaking terms with their mother. Although naturally, the healing process had a lot of anger on their part. 
Yeah, yeah, I bet. In contrast, while they've not publicly confirmed either way, it would seem they're not in contact with their father, the same father that claimed he ended the lie to see them and spend more time with them. Mm, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So what's John up to now? Well, John has settled in the Philippines with a new wife. The Philippines? In the Philippines, yeah. Wow. He really wanted that exotic getaway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His new wife, called Mercy, is a mum of three, and she sublets her clothing stall in the city's market and runs another retail venture. John still receives a UK state pension of around £134 a week, and it's believed they let the property next door to their new home. So John is still in lettings. Wow. And that's it. That is the case of John Darwin, the canoe con man. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, so he said that he was going to come back for his sons and his family, and then was like, see ya, I'm going to go and find a new wife. And it's, it's almost kind of co- like ironic as well that her name's Mercy. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah it, wow, what a story. You. Stories like this, you just can't believe that they're real. Like, this is real life. Like, it does sound like a, a movie or, like, a story. Like, <laughs> unbelievable. Well, it's interesting you say that. I believe ITV are making a four-part miniseries oh. on this case. And there's already a dramatised documentary um, no on, on this case, which people I'd, can check out. I'd be interested to watch that, definitely, because this is just, like... No other. But yeah, well, thank you so much for putting this together, Greg. Like, it was really well researched. And such an interesting, such an interesting case. And quite nice that that we've made the change of no one actually died in this one. (laughs) No one died today, which is good. Yeah. But yeah, no, thank you. Uh, it's It's a good case, just because it's so hard to wrap your head around exactly why they did that. Lots of people get into debt. Not lots of people fake their own death, as far as I'm aware. So, yeah, super interesting. How they thought they'd get away with it, although they said that they always thought it was going to come to an end. But what's the point of that then? Ah, <laughs> oh, wow. Great story. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed. Do you want to share the social medias so that people can reach out or recommend cases? So, yeah, you can send us in your personal true crime and paranormal stories to our email address at goringguiltypodcast at gmail.com you can follow us on our instagram at goringguiltypodcast where you can send in your own case requests and suggestions and you can follow us on our twitter because greg has so kindly set that up again at gore and guilty so if you like this episode please feel free to send us a review we love those stars and subscribe and all that jazz And yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, we won't judge if... Gore is your guilty pleasure. Thank you for listening, guys. Thanks, guys.